You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, everybody. We have this series called The Supremacy of Christ, and uh, if you guys haven't noticed, um, and for some of you who are new, there is a preaching schedule, so this is available for you to take, pray for, and pray that we would be able to just fall under just this enormous uh, love and and beholding uh, the beauty of Christ. Uh, We've gone through uh, Christ in um, the supremacy of Christ in salvation, the supremacy of Christ in the New Testament, exalting Christ in culture, exalting Christ in evangelism, Christ in the local church, uh, Christ in the Old Testament, and then Christ last week in biblical counseling. So this is part nine. We're going to see Christ through his word in vocation. So, vocation, that's just a fancy word for work, right? So, work. What is work? Well, work, uh, some feel that it is a necessary evil to get us to the weekend, right? Everybody's working for the weekend. Some say work is fulfilling. It's uh, satisfying on a lot of levels because it satisfies our need for acceptance and validation for our performance. Some say work is who we are because it's what we do. I'm a makeup artist, a business owner, a nurse. So we find identity. We find our identity in what we do. I did a very unscientific survey and I asked, what do you think of, what's your gut reaction when you think of work? And so... There were some answers that varied from, uh, to, well, it's satisfying. Uh, some have answered, it's necessary, and it's effort. It's just what we do. Now, for some, and I would say for many of us, especially when work represents a level of stress that's very common to our experience, Monday, or the beginning of our work week, it equals negative vibes, right? There's a source of anxiety. I see a little bit of a, yeah, I hear what you're talking about. So you know that feeling you get Sunday night before Monday? That's, uh, my son Hans, he calls those the Sunday scaries. So what is work? What is work? We know it by different names, vocation, as we mentioned, profession, calling. But I think we would all agree that it is important Work is important. That's obvious. It's important because it's the way we eat. It's the way we provide for ourselves. It's the way we provide for our families. The Apostle Paul is very clear in his second letter to the Thessalonians. He says this in chapter 3, verse 10. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, he's not saying that those who don't work, but those who are not willing to work. I want to make that clear. Because being out of work sometimes is beyond our control. And that's okay. That's understandable. 
as long as you're willing to do what you can to find gainful, honest work. But what I want us to see this morning in regards to what work is, is not so much what we do, not so much what we do or even how we do it. That'll come later. But I want us to understand first why we work. Why do we work? Now, it's important for me to say here that when I'm referring to work, I'm not just referring to a job where you get paid. I'm also including those of us, many in here, who work in what may at times seem so challenging and frustrating, but can be most satisfying and gratifying. And that's those of us who are raising children. This includes you. And I'm also referring to work, whether it's in the ministry or outside of the ministry, whether it's in non-church-related work or church-related work. I want us to see that what we do for work or why we do it is something that doesn't have a sacred or a secular divide. It's all included. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything, including our work. So in seeing why we work, whether it's at home or in the office or out on site, we must see who God is, and then we want to see what he has done. Who God is and what he has done. So I want us to see again through the word is the supremacy of Christ and how that reality, the reality of Christ's supremacy, it permeates everything we do, everything including our work. So we'll do that this morning by looking at his word. If you stand with me, please, as we read God's word, if you're able to, we're going to take a look at the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush was in the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we answer the question as to why we work, we see a story unfolding. Like Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities, this is a tale or a story, a true story of two gardens. God is a God who works. We see that very clearly in this passage. He works as our provider. And here we see God creating paradise. Paradise, a garden where he places Adam and his creation is perfect. It's not lacking in any way, in any way, shape or form. It's complete and it is good. In verse 31 of the previous chapter, chapter one, God proclaimed perfection and beauty. And God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So chapter two begins that it was so good and so complete that he rested. God rested and as he did, he reflected upon the goodness of his creation. Complete and perfect. Next, we see the text revealing that God provides life. Life because in himself is life. He himself is life. In the gospel of John, remember, Christ himself is called the creator, the word, the one who is life. All things, John writes, were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Christ, was life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Hate to break it to you. We're not evolved matter. Amen? We are made in the image of God and we're given life. 
And here in verse 7 of our text, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it's a powerful, powerful, and yet intimate and beautiful description of the creator giving life to Adam. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed into him the breath of life and the man became a living creature. A living creature. Now creature, in Hebrew, it, it, uh, the word is nefesh. Nefesh. And what that means is soul. We're living souls. All the capacities that we have, all the things that we do, our ability to reason, to experience everything good and bad, is we are living souls. We are souls with a body. And we're complete. And as living souls, we bear the image of God. As living souls, we bear the image of God. And so as we move on in our story here in the garden, verses 8 through 14, we see how God provides us with a physical place, a location. And in doing so, he provides us with everything we materially need. Now here God provides everything we need to be sustained. And notice in in, uh, verses 8 and 9, that it is the Lord God who planted a garden. And it was the Lord God who made to spring up every tree that's not only good for food, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. In verses 10 through 14, we see how God then provides geographical features and in this case, rivers, so that what? Civilizations and cultures can develop and ultimately Flourish. You guys thought I was going to say fishing, huh? All you fishing, uh, probably no, no fishers out here. But anyways, we see how God has provided this so that civilizations and cultures can develop and ultimately flourish because his command, if you remember his command in chapter one, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And that command is not without provision. God provides what he commands and he provides the means by which this command could be obeyed. Now think about past history. Think about your favorite cities throughout the world. We got some world travelers here. When you see all the cultures that have thrived throughout history, they're always near a body of water. If not the ocean, then it's by a river or a lake, right? Now think about that. This is where a water supply is is provided so that we could have drinking water, power, irrigation, trade and commerce, food, transportation, recreation. All that we need takes place because of a life-giving and a supporting water source. And notice in verse 12, bdellium, onyx, and gold, which is good. It seems a little odd that Moses would inject that in Genesis, when he's talking about the creation of life, then he says, bdellium, onyx, and gold, and the gold is good. Now, material of this is provided so that God has, as God has commissioned Adam to care for the earth and to flourish, he can do so by taking these natural elements provided 
and he can develop, he can innovate, and he can create all that is needed for people to live. Think about the utilitarian aspects of this, like cooking and plates and cups, all these utensils, tools, and think about items of beauty, jewelry, decor, and tools. For some of us, they, we, we like tools. But these are all things that we need and things which the Lord God provides, even in the minerals of the earth, so that we could, in turn, as an extension, create and recreate ourselves. Now, in verses 15 through 17, we see the provision of God through the commission the provision of God through the commission that the Lord God gives Adam and he does that by giving him authority. Now, authority is not inherent in and of ourselves. Authority is given by God. And we only exercise authority by stewarding it well through obedience. Obedience is part of God's provision and it enables Adam to work the land and to keep it. And thus he ensures that humanity can flourish, fulfilling God's command. Take a look at verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's our commission. And through the authority given in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat. He's giving him permission, authority, to eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17 But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The church. It's only through perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. That God's blessing can be fully realized only through perfect obedience that God's blessing can be fully realized. And so in this final part of chapter two, we're going to see the Lord's provision through community. He did so by creating the perfect companion for Adam, his helpmate Eve. And notice how God expresses how important Eve is to Adam. He says, out of all the things in his creation, that the only thing that was not good is the absence of Eve. And what's interesting too, God interjects in this final paragraph of chapter two, that in verses 19 and 20, he reveals something about God and us. If you take a look at verses 19 and 20, first, Adam, he, uh, excuse me, the Lord brings the animals to Adam for him to name them. And we see that the task given, while requiring some creativity on the part of Adam, because good thing he didn't name the animals thing one, thing two. He saved that for Dr. Seuss. But work does not satisfy the need for companionship or for love or for community. Work in and itself does not do that. But work is a social thing. Work done by us is for others. Work done by others is also for us. Work, even in an individual task is something that's mutually beneficial for everybody. That's what we do when we work. The Lord God had made woman and he brought her to the man. 
So without expounding on all the virtues of God's creation of woman for man, and they are plenty, let's look at Adam's reaction. And this is humanity's first love poem in verse 23. He says, this at last. Now we know where Etta James got her inspiration. At last. All right, I'll stop with the jokes. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They were united. They were of the same essence. And the chapter ends in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, out of all the benefits and blessings of the garden, the one thing that makes it truly paradise is the very presence of God. That's what makes paradise, paradise, the very presence of God. And because the presence of God was there, it was a place of glory. It was a place of glory. The Garden of Eden, paradise, All is well, or so it would seem. We know the rest of the story, right? The cosmic drama unfolds in the next chapter, chapter three, as Adam disobeyed God. He desired not to obey God, but to rebel and to desire not the gracious provision of God, but to desire his own glory. That's what Adam desired when he wanted to take the fruit of the tree. He didn't accept God's provision. He desired his glory. And through Adam's rebellion, sin entered into the world. The world that was once pristine and perfect in beauty is now spoiled. It's distorted. It's disfigured. We now see destruction through murder and abuse. Sin and death now reign. Authority, God-given authority, used not to care for others, but now it's misused to abuse others. Power used to degrade women and murder young ones while seeking glory even in their sin. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of Cain and Lamech, if you remember, in chapter 4. And this is our story. This is our story, church. And if we think, well, you know, that was just then. That was then. We just need to do better. I could do better. What makes you think sin gets better over time? It doesn't. Left to ourselves, the problems we face don't just get better. As someone said... Why do you think we have keys in our pockets or passwords on our phones? We're not that trustworthy. We're not that good. In fact, we are by nature children of wrath. We, like Adam, in our flesh, apart from Christ, we distrust God. And even in Christ, we struggle with our flesh and we distrust God. And we do so because we want control. 
We want control. We want glory. And we idolize ourselves. And when we sin, we often blame shift. Like Adam did with Eve. Our default becomes how we can explain away our sin or how we can justify our sin. And guess what? The workplace, the place in which we work, that's where it happens as well. And it's not because the workplace is bad. It's because we are there. So despite the most ideal of circumstances, our fallen nature and the presence of sin instead of the presence of God explains why work is ultimately not fulfilling. Why at times it's frustrating and oftentimes it's marked by conflict. In the Garden of Eden, going back to the pristine place where God's provision abounded, this garden, Garden of Eden, that was once paradise where life was whole, where there was peace, where all of creation, the plants, the colors, the rich minerals, the beauty, it was real and it was unlike anything ever since. And it's where Adam and Eve had intimate fellowship with God, a garden with all of its benefits, a place of of glory because God's presence was there. God's presence. So Adam and Eve's greatest blessing, the very presence of God, is now there and our greatest loss. Now we're going to move on to the second garden. We're going to see how God provides through salvation in Christ. So we read the first garden, the Garden of Eden, paradise lost, through the sin of Adam. And now we see the provision of God through Christ, the second Adam. The Apostle Paul calls Christ himself the second Adam. So we have the first glimpse of the gospel. Even as Adam and Eve are being expelled from the garden, you guys remember Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It says here in Genesis 3.15, I, God will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it was foreshadowed, again, in the covering provided by God through death in verse 21 of chapter 3. It says there, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, Garments of skins, and he clothed them. They were before sin, naked and unashamed, but looking forward to Christ, that shame will be covered. Now, these two mentions, it's all a way to serve as a, as a way to point forward. It points forward to the time where the presence of God for our blessing is going to be regained but it came at such a cost. It came at such a cost. And it's one that will take a lifetime discovering the nature of that sacrifice. And we're going to spend an eternity praising God for it. Amen? Now, Jesus Christ, sent by the Father, he was in a different garden. 
He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where the most intense spiritual warfare was taking place. Here, the God-man, the second Adam, the one who had created the heavens and the earth, all the host of them, the one who declared that his creation is good and beautiful, the one who had breathed life into Adam and made him a living soul. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 34, the second Adam, upon entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, he said to them, My soul. My soul. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Disciples, remain here and watch. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. One translation says that horror and anguish overwhelmed him. In his humanity, the horror and the anguish of impending death, it overwhelmed him. Jesus fell to the ground and in in the Hebrew, the way of praying was to stand up and falling down to the ground. And we've done this sometimes ourselves. It was a position of extreme urgency, asking the Father, remove this cup from me. Yet, unlike Adam in his disobedience, Jesus in his suffering and in his extreme distress, he responds in perfect obedience. Yet not what I will, but you will. Yet not what I will, but you will, Father. Imagine facing death, death for the wrongs that we have done. And in a very true sense, we do die if the Lord doesn't come back because of our sin. But when we die, Physically, we do not bear the penalty of our sin. The handwriting that was due against us in Colossians 1, requiring our death, it was removed permanently by being nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross. You recall the minerals and the metals in Genesis 2, where God had provided from the ground They were provided, as I mentioned, to create alloys, to make tools and utensils for art and technology so that we could create all that is needed so we could flourish. Imagine, these very same elements were forged to create 
strong metal spikes. Ones that were used to nail Jesus to the cross. Remember the trees that God created that were pleasant to the sight and good for food? The very wood from the trees he made was used to plane out strong timbers to make a cross. Even in Christ's death, his creation serves him for his purpose, for you and for me. He is our provider. So imagine one who faced death, Christ himself, who had to answer for all the sins that I committed, all the sins that you have committed, and all the sins that those whom he foreknew have committed. And yet, even in that, one commentator puts it this way. He says, the worst prospect of becoming the sin bearer for humanity is that it spells out complete alienation from God. An alienation that will shortly echo above the desolate landscape of Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He not only paid our debt of sin, satisfying the righteous wrath of God as the second Adam, but here's the good news. Christ has imputed to us by his perfect obedience, his righteousness by our faith in him. He was abandoned for us so that he could bring us into the very presence of God. Paradise lost is now paradise regained through the blood and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? So by faith in Christ, this is the good news, the tale of two gardens, because of the second garden, By faith in Christ, we're now a new creation, a new humanity. So we saw God provide through creation in Genesis chapter 2. We see how God had provided through salvation in Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and through the cross. And now we see how God provides in and through us as his new creations with a new purpose. You see, now that we are in Christ... We have a new vision. We have a new way of looking at things. And that means a new ethic. And that affects everything, church. Everything, including our work. We see work now in a whole new light because of Christ. One that is redeemed, but is rooted in what we learned in Genesis 2. And one that helps us understand why, and now as we'll get into this application, how we work. So why do we work? First we find out that because of Genesis chapter 2, work is moral. Work is moral. It's a moral activity because its origin is from God himself. We saw in Genesis 2 how he worked in creation. And now, in our salvation, he works. He works in his providence, which is his active and intimate care for the world, for you and me. And Christ himself right now is actively working for us, interceding at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is perfecting us, preparing us for glory. God is at work. He never sleeps. 
And therefore, when we, as his own, as his children, as his people, when we work, we're doing honest work at home in the workplace or wherever, we're engaged in God-ordained activity. When we work, when we do honest work, we're engaged in God-ordained activity. It's more than just a necessity or a thing we do. Think of it this way. If God is a God who works and God is holy, then what he does is holy. And if we're made in his image and we're now new creations in Christ, then we're called also to obey him, not for salvation, but because of salvation. And in obeying him, we become more like Christ. We become more like Christ the more we obey him. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 13. Therefore, Peter writes, it's on the screen as well. Therefore, since you are saved, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have now an expectation that we live in. In verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct, even at work. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what it means to live out the gospel reality because as his witnesses in all your conduct, we take the very presence of God into our workplace. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, and we take the presence of God now into the workplace, whether it's at home or an actual office or even out on site. And the why we work, the why we work is linked to the how we work. So to focus on this, we're going to look at some familiar passages that in light of the gospel, we're going to ask some honest questions. Honest questions here that I hope will serve as application. So the first verse I want us to look at is Acts 1.8. Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, church, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. So here's the question. What if we really believed that we have the very power of God to be his witnesses in the place where we spend most of our productive hours with people who aren't even part of the family of God? God's gospel power is not restricted by time and place, but it is made evident in time and in specific places for the very purpose to make his presence known. For the very purpose to make his presence known. As in the garden, we're vessels for such a purpose to steward his resources. But unlike in the garden, 
He uses you and, and through your work, both in location, your job, as well as your endeavor, your job, we're now moved from, as Rick Eisenberg mentioned a couple of weeks ago, from a come and see to now a go and tell. We go and tell about who Christ is in the highways, in the byways, in the workplaces, and at home. By his grace and through his power, we are now commissioned as his witnesses wherever we are, wherever we are. The second verse I want us to look at is Ephesians 2.10. Again, these are familiar verses. Many of us have them memorized. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what if we really believed that we were saved by grace through faith, not of works, and that we were saved by good works, or excuse me, for good works, that we were saved for good works. We, church, have been born again by the Holy Spirit, and we are united by faith in and with Christ. And because we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, we have now received a commission by God himself, which he prepared beforehand. It says it in that verse, 2.10, God had prepared beforehand these works that we should walk in them. Now, the Greek word for work is ergon, ergon. And specifically in this passage, Ephesians 2.10, it means every good work springing from faith and devotion. These are works that are uh, from us, created in Christ Jesus, that we do out of faith and devotion to God. So like Adam was commissioned in the Garden of Eden, so now through the second Adam, we are commissioned. And our motivation now is not for our own glory. Our motivation now is for the benefit of others and to glorify God in that. So like Christ came for the benefit of of others, what if the good work that we do was also for the benefit of others? Think about that. What if the work that we do to innovate, to perform, to create, to take resources and gifts that God gave us intellectually, physically, materially, so that we can improve and contribute positively to other people's well-being? And this can take place on a small personal level but it also can take on a, a place on a large scale. It really depends on your work situation and context. But this is what God has prepared for you to do. And I would bet, this may be an unfair comparison, but I would bet that Jesus, as he worked as a carpenter, he was making the best table possible with the materials that he had available And he was making it as straight and level as he could. Why? Because he was desiring to please his earthly father, his employer, Joseph. But he was also desiring to please his heavenly father. So, consider your work. Consider what what you do. 
If you're inspecting a building's infrastructure, ensuring the safety of those in it, that is a good work. What if you're providing a safe home so your kids can grow up secure and confident knowing that God loves them? That is a good work. What if you're making someone look good and feel good through a haircut or a hairstyle? Or you're providing coverage for a person or a corporation's health benefits so they, in turn, as a corporation, can carry out their mission and pay their employees. What if you're creating a literary work or some visual art so that we can be provoked to see things that we otherwise could not? That's a good work. What if we're caring for a patient in whatever situation, emergency or otherwise? That's a good work. What if we're making the mortgage application process more efficient so a family can finish escrow and make memories in their own home? You're contributing to a good work. Whatever it is we do, because of our union with Christ, church, we give him glory in all our conduct in every good work because he has created us to do this very thing. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to revisit the first verse there, verse 13. I want us to see something there as another way to apply how we work. It says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the Holy Spirit exhorts us here, What if we set our hope fully on Christ's return so that we have a desire not for the things of this world, but to excel at work as a reflection that God is indeed our master and Jesus Christ is indeed our Lord. The idols represented in this day and age, the prestige, the honor, the recognition, the power, the glory. Through the power of the gospel, those are replaced by our love for God. Only through the power of the gospel, through his provision. And now we could seek to please God through loving our neighbor, who is our coworker, our client, our customer. By doing the best job that we can, knowing that one day soon, we will be face to face with Jesus. What if? What if? Now, I want to interject something about idols. I had mentioned that. Idols, sometimes they're often good things, but when they replace God, they become idols, and they're bad. Now, what better way to battle against these temptations, these idols, especially as we start our work week, than to gather as a church on the first day of the week. Here's what I mean. As a contributor to the center of faith and work, and she said this, worship of the one true God is the best countermeasure against the idolatries of the world. Otherwise, we have no resource against becoming enslaved to money, success, power, security, relationships, even beauty. 
So church, let us not forsake the gathering of believers because in doing so, we're better equipped to, be, to have effective measures against those idols as we set our hope fully on Jesus Christ and his return. Amen? So, two last sets of questions, and then we'll be done. And these are based on passages that were provided by an organization called Theology of Work. I don't know if any of you has, has heard of it. I can provide you a link. It's very simple, and it's very helpful. Theology of Work. But in verse, uh, excuse me, John 16, 8. John 16, 8. You could just note it down. Here's the question. What if our brief interactions and our casual mentions of our faith, Holy Spirit was at work in the hearts and minds of people to prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment? What if we knew that the Holy Spirit was at work as we pray for them as we go to work? What if we believe that? And as witnesses, we are salt and light. In John six forty four, the question here for John six forty four is, what if we knew that we didn't have to be perfect and say just the right things? Can you relate? What if we knew we just didn't have to be perfect and say just the right things? that it is God's work to draw people to himself and that no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless drawn by the Father. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work and he works through us. So why do we work? We work because it is good and it is good for others. We work because it reflects who we are in Christ, set apart for him. And whatever it is we do, we do it with excellence, motivated not by our glory, but by our love for God and our love for others. Regardless of our circumstances, we fulfill our commission to be his witnesses for his glory. And in all of this, it's God who provides. We'll end with this last verse here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope, the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect.